This podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts. And we have a brand new episode, especially for 2022. We are going to discuss the latest movie in the Scream franchise, the long-awaited Scream 2022 or Scream 5. Yeah, we will be going to the Troll series of movies, but we've slipped this one as an, as an extra episode. So hope you're not too disappointed and hope you're quite excited about us discussing the new Scream movie and the rest of the franchise. So if you're expecting to tune in, expecting us to talk Troll and Best Worst Movie and all that sort of stuff, you're going to have to wait slightly longer for that because we're going to a recent cinema release, one that's actually playing theatres right now, and it's the fifth in the Scream franchise. We've only had to wait 11 years for the fifth Scream movie. I think we're both fairly excited about this one. This was my most eagerly anticipated film of the last 11 years, let's just say that. I think we're both huge fans of the franchise. For me, the first movie was my introduction to um, horror movies, so it's always got a special place in my heart. So when I heard that they were making another movie, I was really intrigued to see um, where it was going to go. For me, it didn't disappoint, but we're going to get into all that within this episode. I'll give a quick synopsis before we uh, start discussing all the fun stuff to do with Scream. This is from IMDb. 25 years after the original series of murders in Woodsboro, a new ghost face emerges and Sidney Prescott must return to uncover the truth. Is that it? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> is that the synopsis? That's a pretty short one. I'm expecting the old sort of, you know, the, the flowery ones, uh, you know, like a Claudio Carvalho. That sort of thing, or oh, you know, the the master of the synopsis, of course, as well. <laughs> yeah, no, there's no synopsis just yet, other than the generic IMDb one. So I'm sure, um, once more people have seen the movie, um, give it a few weeks, we might get some more on there. I reckon that Nick Reganus is going to do a synopsis fairly shortly. He's got to do a synopsis on screen. And if he does, we will read it out in the next episode, <laughs> even though we won't be covering Scream in that. Yeah, yeah, we've got your back, Nick. <laughs> okay so we're just going to give our overall thoughts of the movie to begin with this one will be fairly spoiler free then we will uh, give you a spoiler warning because we are going to get into everything about this movie and if you haven't seen it yet we don't want it spoiled for you it's best to go in completely blind not knowing what to expect so we will give that warning ahead of when we start talking about it so darren how did you feel <laughs> I was wary about going in to see this. I wondered what they were going to do with it. Having said that, the directors, uh, Matt Bettinelli-Olpin and Tyler Gillette, did Ready or Not, which was one of my favourites from the last few years. So the franchise seemed to be in pretty safe hands. Even so, you just don't know the way this sort of thing is going to go. I'm pleased to say that I came out pretty satisfied at what they'd done with the franchise I had a big grin on my face coming out of the cinema because it hits most of the marks that it's aiming for. The first act is a little bit shaky. I think it's a little bit unsure of what it wants to do. The setup of the new teens is a little bit creaky. That's a very, very minor complaint though, because once it gets going, oh God, it really gets going. See, I was invested from the beginning and I actually quite like the build-up of the scenes with the new teens. A lot of people have already like said that they thought that that bit was a bit too slow and they couldn't take to them as well. But 
I really enjoyed it and I think for certain moments you kind of were taken out of it being a screen film because you haven't seen the original legacy characters by this point but I love the opening scene I thought it was very well done it's not my favorite opening scene by any means it's gonna be very hard to beat the original and the second one and even the fourth to a degree as well because they do something clever in that one but I really liked the pacing and the structure of this film and re just thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, obviously, there was bits I wasn't expecting. And I think because it defied my expectations, we will get into it because I had some theories about what was going to happen that, yeah, just completely didn't. So I like that it actually went in a different direction to what I was expecting it to. Overall, I really can't complain. I mean, this is the fifth movie in the franchise and... Personally, I don't think there's been a bad screen movie in the series. There have been some that are not quite as good as the other ones, and I'm sure we'll get into that. But I think this is probably the point at which now we have to warn listeners that if you haven't seen Scream, then I would switch off now, go and see it, and then come back. Absolutely. So I think we should begin with the opening scene because obviously Scream is iconic for having a really grisly murder scene at the beginning. And it does. It has a young girl being stalked on the phone. It's a very suspenseful build-up. But it does something a bit different in this one compared to the others. And that is the character of um, Tara Carpenter, played by Jenna Ortega. She does not get killed off she is brutally attacked and it really does lead you to think that it's going to be the opening death but there's a reason she is brutally attacked but they still keep her alive and that is because they the killers want to lure her older sister sam carpenter back to woodsboro because um she harbors a secret linked back to the past yeah nicely done this actually because when the opening title card appears just after Tara's been slashed quite brutally. I mean, some of the kills, well, some of the kills and some of the non-kills are quite nasty in this. That when it flicks over to the hospital where she's recuperating, you kind of think, okay, so she's not dead. That seems a bit of a cop-out. But as you say, there's a reason why she's not dead. And it is all to do with luring her sister back because of this incident in the past which has kind of precipitated this new wave of killings. So it's pretty clever in that way. So I think one of the things it does do is that it does enough nods to the previous movies without being, well, don't really want to use the word, but I'm kind of going to have to use it because I can't really think of another word, without being wanky about it. It's referring to the movies, but it's not in general beating you over the head with it. If you haven't seen some of the movies or if you don't remember a lot about the previous four, you don't have to have this encyclopedic knowledge because it is feeding you quite a lot of information. But equally, if you do know the movies quite well, it does slip in a few things where that's just for the fans. Yeah, so this film is very clever in how it approaches its fan service and it does it for a reason. So there are elements in it that if you're a long-time fan of the franchise, and I'll give one example, they play Nick Cave's Red Right Hand in it, and that made me smile because obviously that song is used in the uh, first three movies. It's not in the fourth, but they call back. And then it's basically it's this idea of a requel, which is a term that I actually haven't heard before. So it's because if you look back at the fourth movie, that is meant to be a remake. Now, this is more a reboot of the remake, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think it's very cleverly done in how they handle it. So, as I say, spoilers galore now. The backstory of Sam Carpenter is that she is the secret daughter of Billy Loomis, the killer from the first movie. I didn't think this was a bad idea at all, because I can like imagine that happening if in the first movie um Sydney is kind of you know re a bit reserved and she rejects him so you can Im imagine that he probably would have been a cheater so it's not out of the realms of plausibility that he might have fathered a child the one thing that's a bit off about it is that she's meant to be 23 years old but Billy Loomis died 25 years ago so I'm not sure why they didn't 
kind of polish up that part of continuity. Yeah, I noticed that as well. And I think some people probably think, oh, that's a terrible glaring error. And in some ways it is. But considering what sort of movie it is, I mean, do you really want to get hung up on that sort of fact? It's wrong. But for some people to say, oh, it's terrible and it's kind of, it's bringing the movie down. It's like, no, it isn't. It's a little oversight that we can forgive. Yeah. So... A surprise returning face at this point is Skeet Ulrich as Billy Loomis in a kind of a hallucination ghostly form. People have had a lot of problems with this. They've de-aged him. Um, At first, I was like, had to double take. I was like, wait, is that him? Because obviously, you know, he has aged and they've clearly got the CGI on him. But I didn't mind it. I thought it was kind of cool to see him back. It led me to believe that somebody else was going to come back as well who didn't. But I'll get to that a bit later on. What did you think of the whole like ghostly visions of Billy Loomis? I love Skeet in this. I think he's great. And I think, yeah, the CGI might be slightly off. But the idea that he's appearing to help and or hinder his daughter is a really cool idea. It does lead later on to one of the most satisfying bits of the movie where he pretty much points to the fact that there's something laying around a house somewhere that his daughter can use to hideously bump somebody off. (laughs) Yeah, so it's kind of cool that they have a past character and a villain as well, having a bit of influence over it, which I did like. Going back to the new characters, I think my favourites on the first viewing, I really liked Richie, played by Jack Quaid. I, I was really invested in his character. So he is Sam's boyfriend, and he's allegedly never seen the Stab movies, which are based on the original Woodsboro murders. And he's trying to learn all the conventions of horror as the movie progresses. And he has a lot of humour about him, so I really enjoyed his character. Jenna Ortega as well as Tara Carpenter. I thought she was fantastic. She was a big highlight of this film for me. I'd seen her in um, Netflix's original series, You, and she's brilliant in that as well. So I definitely think she is a star to look out for. I liked uh, Melissa Barrera as Sam. I'd seen her in In the Heights, so she certainly can hold her on in terms of singing and dancing, but she turns out to be a pretty good final girl in this as well. The only problem I have, and it's not a huge problem, with the new group of teens is that they're trying to balance making them like the original group of teens, but also trying to give them a bit more personality. And it kind of falls between two stills a little bit. Some of them are a bit underdeveloped as well. The Meeks Martin siblings, I think they could have done with a bit more airtime because Jasmine Savoy Brown is great. And uh, Mason Gooding has the potential to be great, but I think they sold him a little bit short with his part. Yeah, I think there was too much to kind of unpack in this movie, so I think certain characters did get sacrificed, but the Meeks Martin twins were a great addition. Um, Randy Meeks is my favourite character out of the entire franchise. I absolutely love Jamie Kennedy, and I liked that he had this niece and nephew in this, so it's relating back to the past. I thought that was great, and I like how they both adopted some of his characteristics with like the um like movie trivia and that that sort of stuff in it so that was really great that brings us to the legacy trio so that is of course sydney prescott gail weathers and dewey riley these are some of the best characters in horror movie franchises of all time i think that the best thing about screen is I'm sitting there watching a slasher movie and I can get emotional and really invested in the characters and um, I get more sort of thought-provoking elements out of it. Whereas most slasher films are very throwaway and I think what's so special about Scream is like the writing for these characters and like how we become so attached to them. Now, of course, it's the fifth movie, so, you know, and with the Scream franchise, like no one's ever really safe. I mean, we lost Randy in Scream 2. That was a bit of a shock at the time. I'm still not over it, but, <laughs> you know, I accept it. <laughs> I, I accept it, and it is it is a really great unexpected death scene. So, But going back to this one, I was on edge because I thought somebody's going to go, 
and before I even sat down, I was pretty confident it was going to be Dewey, and I wasn't wrong, but I still cried. <laughs> yeah, same here. I thought, there's got to be a major casualty along the line somewhere, and I thought, are they going to actually kill Sydney off in this one? I mean, I really hope they don't, because Sydney's the heart of the franchise, but you never know, this movie, they could bump her off. But as it moved along, I thought, it's probably going to be Dewey. And when they did kill him off, it was coming, it was emotional, but he does get a very, very spectacular death. Yeah, even though you kind of see it coming, it doesn't make it any easier because, you know, we've been with these characters for 25 years, five movies. It's a lot to take in when there are characters that mean so much to you get killed off. But yeah, it was an epic death scene really brutal and we're going to get more into those kills later on because there's a lot to talk about them as well yeah but i i loved um his moments like with with sydney and with gail as well so um with sydney it's just a phone call it's quite sad that they never get to see each other in person in this movie that's quite bittersweet and then of course the characters of dewey and gail are now separated in the movie they were still married in the last one but their career paths took different trajectories Woodsboro's obviously being too small for Gail because she is this um famous reporter so it was never a place she could stick around so it's always had that balance with them between her being career driven and him wanting to stay in the small town unfortunately it was never going to work between them but they had a really lovely scene before he passed away and you could definitely just feel the grief and pain in Courtney Cox's performance um when she does lose him yeah, I mean, considering this, in some quarters, will be just looked upon as some throwaway multiplex slasher movie, there's some really good performances in this. Courtney Cox is great, and you can really feel the emotion afterwards when she finds out that uh, Dewey's been killed. David Arquette is fantastic in this. The franchise will really miss him if they do another one, but I think to bow out in such a way, I think it's probably what he would have wanted as well, because... You do remember how Dewey goes out in this one. It's brutal. It's totally unnecessary as well. It's just just when you think that, you know, it's not going to be that bad. They really do take Dewey out in the most horrendous and bloody way possible. Yeah, and I think it's going to change the way we view the first four movies now because for years we were like, oh, it's fine, Dewey's safe, even though he's had a few near misses, especially in the first two movies. It's like knowing now what his fate is is going to be quite hard to uh, to watch back. Going back to Sydney, of course, as you say, she's the heart of the franchise. Um, I kind of like that she was more in the background for a lot of the movie, and that's only because I want to keep her safe. <laughs> yeah. A lot's changed in her life in 11 years. In the fourth movie, she had written a book, and um, she'd overcome her fears and trauma from the first three films and she was in a better place and then obviously killing spree happened again but in 11 years she um has had children and it's implied she is married now the fan theory is and i think this is probably pretty accurate her husband's name is mark so we assume that she married mark Kincaid from screen three who is the uh detective yeah that's a pretty good fan theory because she does only refer to mark i think once during the movie but what other markers are in the franchise and there's definitely something between them in the third one so it would be nice to think that they got together but they leave enough of a gap to suggest that it may be or it may not be and i agree with you it's it's good that they keep sydney in the background for the first half of the movie and it's only when the shit really does hit the fan that sydney comes in to try and deal with the situation and to keep the new group of teens safe I will accept no shade being thrown on Sydney Prescott ever. Definitely, she is the ultimate horror heroine. Going back to the um, marriage aspect, I am aware that they did want Patrick Dempsey back for Scream 4, but there were scheduling conflicts, so that's why they um, didn't include the character of Mark Kincaid in there. So I'm just thinking that's how they've handled it this time as well, which is, is quite cool. The continuity in this franchise is pretty good, apart from the whole Billy Loomis daughter thing. But as I say, we're, we're going to overlook that. I'm not going to get too upset. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's one thing out of a whole 
raft of franchise details. One franchise detail I did like was that uh, Martha comes back. Heather Matarazzo's character from Scream 3 appears again, which is a nice little bit of detail from a movie that wasn't quite as well accepted by sort of the audiences and the fans alike, but it's nice that there's a nod to Scream 3 in there. I mean, we'll get into rankings later on about the movies. I know that there's a lot of shit thrown at Scream 3. I mean, yeah, it's not the greatest in the franchise, in my opinion, but there's lots of good ideas in Scream 3. And I think that if it had been a bit less rushed and a bit more development put into it, I think that it could have possibly even topped the franchise. As it was, it's fine. I don't think it deserves all the stuff that it's had thrown at it over the years. Yes, it might not be the greatest slasher movie ever, but Scream 3, it's a lot better than a lot of other slasher movies. I completely agree with you, and um, there's a lot of history behind that film and why it ended up like it did, so that's quite fascinating to look into. But as you say, it was just rushed into production. Nev Campbell wasn't available to be in as many scenes, so they had to like film all her scenes quite close together. So Sydney's not featured as much. There's a lot of problems with it, but it's like it's a movie I I can watch over and over. Like I never skip it. I I do enjoy watching it. I don't even have a problem with the whole um, half brother being the killer stuff. I I actually quite like that. I mean I know. It's the first one where Sydney has no prior interaction with the killer before his reveal. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I, I don't think Roman is a bad idea at all. I, I'm quite okay with it. I, I don't mind Scream 3. I, it's, I'm not one of those people that absolutely hates on it at all. So, But going back, it was great to see Martha. That really made me smile because I was like, yeah, they've kept that. in, And it's good to see her with her children. And then they had that kind of nice um, memorial photo of randy and a little shrine to him and i thought that was really nice isn't it the randy makes screening room in the house yeah <laughs> which it, is just oh, so cool it's what he would have wanted yeah definitely and i do love that he appears in screen three in that video format i think it was a great way to bring in jamie kennedy again Talking about past characters as well, we can't not mention Marley Shelton's character, Deputy Judy Hicks. She was first introduced in the fourth movie, and this time around she is accompanied by her son, Wes Hicks, obviously <laughs> named after the wonderful and much-missed Wes Craven. This brings me to my theory. Bear with me, everybody. Before this, <laughs> I'm going to get into it. I've already like said I said this um, to my friends like after the movie, so um, I've already kind of given this feel. But right, going back to Scream Three, in the original script, there were supposed to be two killers, Roman and a girl called Angelina. Now she was a girl who was supposed to be playing Sydney in the Stab movie, but she had known Sydney from high school but became obsessed with her. So that was that was meant to be the motive. And obviously they changed all that. There was just one killer in Scream 3. In Scream 4, we discover that Judy Hicks had actually been to high school with Sydney. And there's that really strange scene in the house where she starts talking about, oh, don't you remember me? We were in play together. And I know that was kind of put in as red herring and to cast suspicion on her. But I thought they were actually going to do something with that this time round. And my original theory was that the killers could be Judy Hicks and her son. But I was completely thrown. Not a particularly bad theory, because as they say, in various screen movies, everyone's a suspect. So, you know, Judy's a reasonably good call for the killer this time. Of course... Judy does meet a rather gruesome fate in quite a good suspense sequence where she's racing against time to get back and save her son because Ghostface has called from inside her house and he's saying that he's going to murder her son who's in the shower and he says, oh, have you, have you ever seen a movie called Psycho? Which I thought was funny. That was hilarious. That was a brilliant touch. And that was like scream at its best humour. But yeah, um, I suppose in a call back to Randy's death as well, she is brutally murdered in broad daylight. It's horrible. Yeah. And then her son doesn't fare much better as well because you think, oh, maybe he'll be okay. 
sadly not but so that completely threw me and I was kind of sitting there because this is about midway through the film and I'm like okay I'm completely wrong where is this going I'm really loving this like this it could be anyone it, it's not going to be who I think it is to be fair I think the only time I've correctly guessed the killer is Mickey in Scream 2 I was like straight away it's definitely him yeah. this time around it was just it just plays around so much it can literally be anybody and I, I just love that about the franchise that you just never know who it is it could even be one of the legacy characters I mean I'm glad they never went there but I just love that element of surprise with it yeah I think if they'd have gone for one of the legacy characters that's shock value for just the sake of shock value and I think it's a lazy thing to have one of them come back and be the killer but they didn't do it so We've got no qualms with that at all. Normally, if Marley Shelton is killed in a movie, then they would have me to answer to because I love Marley Shelton. I think she's great in everything. But Judy, she's a bit of a dick in this movie, it has to be said. Again, like you said, she's killed off in a really brutal way. And the switch back between Wes in the house and her trying to get there quickly really expertly done it's a really great suspense sequence it stands up with everything else that's been in the franchise Wes's death that is super brutal because he gets a knife in the neck and it comes out of one side of it it's it's revolting it's really really nasty yeah and it lingers on it for so long as well yeah and I think that's probably why certainly in the UK it's an 18 rated movie it certainly earns it with its kills they're nasty and they're quite protracted. Would you agree that these are the nastiest kills in the entire franchise, like as in in the whole movie? Because I don't remember the original trilogy being as brutal as this one. Oh, easily. I think they've upped the stakes in terms of on-screen violence. I think in some of the other screen movies, it's kind of what you don't see that scares you more. In this one, it's all there on the screen. People get stabbed repeatedly, set on fire, shot. You know, there's all sorts of stuff going on in this movie. So for anybody that thinks, oh, have they dialed the gore back on this one because they want to make it a bit more teen friendly? No, they haven't. If you're in the UK, you have to be 18 years old to see that movie. And I was very happy about this fact because I don't like them toning these movies down to a 15 just to get bums on seats. I, you know, I want to, you know, see a proper... Goldfield, 18-rated horror, but with an actual plot. And this achieves all of that, so it's fantastic. Of course, Scream is best known as well for its commentary on the horror genre, and it doesn't let up here at all. We have satire on the uh, elevated horror debate, which is great. We have mentions to Jordan Peele films and Ari Aster films, so it's keeping in line with the uh, current horror trends as well, so I think that's awesome. Yeah, and it also touches upon where franchises go and where they make mistakes in trying to pander to certain elements of the audience. The footage from Stab 8 is hilarious. The bit with the flamethrower made me laugh quite a lot. Yeah, that was hilarious. And something that I completely missed, and when I go for my second viewing of this movie, I'm going to be looking out for it. There's a scene where Richie is on his laptop, as you say, um, watching this review of Stab 8. And there's a recommended video on the side that says interview with Woodsboro survivor Kirby Reed. And I did not see that. And people have been talking about it. And I think that's so cool that they've confirmed that she's actually alive and she survived Scream 4. Yeah, again, I will have no shade thrown on Kirby. Kirby's great. And it is nice to know that she did get out of there because it leaves her fate hanging in the balance when you watch Scream 4. Nice to see that she did get out of there. Part of me thought, there's no way that Kirby died in that movie. But you never know. And I think Wes Craven had always hinted that he never wanted her to die. And I think she was always going to be a part of the trilogy from Screen 4 onwards that he was originally going to be creating. So, again, it's clever how it does pander to the fan service. Because as fans of Scream, we want Kirby to be alive. We want these elements in it, like I say, Red Right Hand playing, Dewey's theme. There's a lot of that, but then it all plays into the killer motive. It does. Before before we get into it, 
we have to address the Matthew Lillard hype. Yeah, and I was kind of thinking that there was so much hype about Matthew Lillard that I thought the plot is surely going to revolve around this cult that springs up from the first scream and that he's pulling the strings from prison. No, doesn't happen at all. That's where it completely threw me off as well. So just for a bit of background and context, again, the original idea for Scream 3 was that there was going to be this ghost face cult like orchestrated by Stu from prison. He never really died. That TV did not squish his head. (laughs) So he survived and these killers were all going to rise up in his house and attack Sydney and then it would be revealed that he was behind the whole thing. Fantastic idea. Um, Obviously it got shelved because of the Columbine tragedy and rightly so at the time, but it was one of Wes Craven's um, choices for the movie and because this movie is essentially a tribute to Wes Craven, I did think, oh, is this going to play into it? Also, the stature of Ghostface as well. There's a meme going around the internet um, of Ghostface side by side with Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. <laughs> Matthew Lillard's hyped this up himself. Of course, when Skeet appeared in it, I thought it's got to be. I thought if he's in it, Matthew Lillard's going to be in it. It's one of a number of ways that this movie wrong foots you because it's playing into your expectations about what you think you're going to see in this movie. And, of course, with the advent of social media, you've got people like Matthew Lillard who quite mischievously put these things out there to suggest that he might be in the movie. So big up to Matthew for playing along. Yeah, and he's been interviewed about it as well many times. Um, So, yeah, it's really clever. I mean... I was a bit gutted that he wasn't in it. I was gutted that he wasn't like a mastermind behind the killers or anything like that. But I've had time to process the movie a bit more. And I actually really think it's clever how they've done it. They're really winking at the audience and they are basically satirising us as fans. And I think it's great. Yeah. And I think anybody that gets upset about its comment on toxic fandom is one of those toxic fans themselves because, you know, horror fans, they can laugh at themselves. They can point out the absurdity of following a franchise for years and years and being blind to all of its flaws. But this movie is all predicated around when that fandom goes bad and when the line is crossed. And I think it's great. I think it does point out that kind of super fandom where it just goes too far. And it points it out really well. When the killers are revealed at the end, they're fans, but they've just taken it way too far and they've lost sight of what makes the franchise what it is and their ideas for how to take the franchise in a different direction are ludicrous. And they're pointed out as being ludicrous as well. And of course, they end up being part of a different direction that the real life, in inverted commas, Woodsboro franchise is going because they become victims of their own plot. Yeah, it's just genius. And I think when you sit down and really digest it all, you think, well done to them for coming up with this idea. Because at first I was sitting there like, oh, this is a bit more of an updated version of Mickey's motive. I was like, I'm not really sure that I'm going with this. But I know now on my second viewing, I think I'm going to be a lot more ready for it and kind of taking it all in a bit more. So we're going to reveal the killers now. So if you've got this far and you don't want to know, but I'm sure, as Darren said at the beginning, if you wanted to to switch us off and come back after you've seen the movie, that's best advice. Yeah, yeah. if you've you've listened to us all this way through now, we've given you most of the plot details away and who's in it and who's not in it. So, you know, (laughs) if you're up to this point and you actually don't want to know who the killers are, switch off now. But I think... Considering what we've told you in the previous 30 minutes, you're probably just better sticking around because we'll tell you what goes off at the end. So the first killer that's revealed is Amber. She is um, part of the friend group and she is living in Stu Marker's house. The film actually concludes in the same house, the same kitchen with Billy and Stu terrorise Sydney. So obviously, again, playing into fan service... Her motive is that she was obsessed with the house since her parents bought it and she obviously wanted to do better than 
the original and um as you say it's going back to that fan obsession and um, wanting to take things in their own direction i thought she was played up as a red herring i was very i was quite surprised because as i say i was expecting it to be like some something completely different to what it was yeah so yeah i think okay because there is a scene going into the garage where Tatum is murdered in the first movie and there's this interaction between Amber and Mindy and it's like, oh, how do I know you're not the killer? And it literally could be anybody at this point. I, like, again, I think she was too much of a red herring and then it fooled us again, being her. Yeah, they set Amber up as being somebody who's not really a standout member of the group. And I think the fact that she is in the background and she doesn't influence an awful lot of what goes on kind of wrong foots the audience and you're not really concentrating on the fact. And then you do get that scene in the basement where she's wandering around and she's not looking behind her and you it's kind of throwing you in the direction of thinking, well, she's trying to pick up all the rules from Mindy, but maybe she's not going to pick all of them up and she's still going to get killed. But of course... No, she's one of the killers. And before we reveal killer number two, um, we just need to mention that we get to see an unseen scene from Stab, the yes. first one, which is the whole moment where Randy is relaying the rules of the horror franchise. Now, if you remember back to Scream 2, um, he's complaining that there's a complete unknown actor playing him, and then at least Dewey got David Schwimmer. <laughs> so obviously we just get to see this actor playing him in, in the movie, and then Mindy is watching and, and enjoying it, and it's just a callback to the original where she's basically saying, look behind you, and Ghostface is then behind her, and she does look behind. And then, of course, with um, her brother as well, there's that whole subversiveness there where he's meant to be this jock but he's actually not ready to have sex with his girlfriend so they kind of flip that up what they normally do in regular horror movies where it's like oh there's this jock guy and he's going to pressure the girl into having sex but as i say they they flip side that which is really good so killer number two so you know i was talking about how much i enjoyed this character and he was like my favorite well, Richie is killer number two, and I didn't see it coming. There was part of me that thought, this guy is too good to be true. And also a part of me thought, he's the first guy you really see at the start. And he's so set up to be the unsung hero by the end of it. Part of me did think, is it going to do a flip and make him the killer? I wasn't totally sure, and I wasn't really stuck on 100%, so I can't say, yes, I spotted the killer a mile off. But when they revealed him to be the killer, I thought, yeah, I can see where that was coming from. Again, it's a nice twist, because he's the one that, on the face of it, is making all the wrong choices. He stays in the town when he should get out of there. He says, I'll be right back when he's going somewhere, which, as we know is certain death in a horror movie, if you say, I'll be right back. But at the end, he flips and you kind of see the personality under the facade. Jack Quaid, big up to Jack Quaid, great performance. Yeah, I would have been absolutely screwed in this movie because I <laughs> fell for Richie the whole time. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think it's, again, very clever how they did it. I mean, this is a slight gripe, and I'm sorry, but I'm going to say it. I was very confused how somebody as short as Amber could look so tall in that ghost face costume. Well, I'm I'm just going to say it was a matter of perspective. Yeah, okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> I'm not going to get like too annoyed about it, but it was just, I think it was because how tall Ghostface was, I was expecting Matthew Lillard, and it wasn't Matthew Lillard. He is not in this movie. He is referred to, um, he even has a nephew that gets killed off in it, but... Yes. That's just something throwaway that kind of happens uh, just to up the ante at the beginning. The final act brings everybody together in Stu's house and there's some jeopardy. There's a little bit of a curveball thrown in where Sydney and Gail are at the mercy of the killers. But part of me thought, they've killed Dewey off already. Are they really going to kill Sydney and Gail off? I don't think so. 
No, I my heart was racing. I'm not gonna lie, especially when Gail got shot. I was like, no, they can't. They can't do this. They've already hurt us once in this film. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, no, it was it was great just to see that whole strong women teaming up together, working together. If you look back to the beginning of the franchise, Sydney and Gail had this very turbulent relationship because Gail had written this book about Sydney's mother who'd been murdered and they never used to get on. And it's just great to see how that friendship had developed throughout the course of the films. And by this time, it was like pure solidarity and they had each other's backs. And obviously they had their mutual love for Dewey as well on their side. So, yeah, it was absolutely great to see them team up. And you just think, yeah, nobody's going to beat them at all. And then obviously you add Sam into it as well. So there's great dynamics going on in, in the climax of the film. I'm assuming that uh, Nev Campbell and Courtney Cox get on really well off screen because that kind of comes across. The interactions between Sydney and Gail are very, very sweet and there's there's a kind of a deep understanding between them, which is quite nice. And the overriding message coming from the last act is don't fuck with Sydney Prescott or Gail Weathers because um, they'll... Well, they'll metaphorically bite you on the arse. As soon as they've got a chance to turn the tables, they will. I mean, they needed a little bit of help, but they do They do overcome the killers. Quite spectacularly, um, in Amber's case, shot, set on fire. Good stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. An epic death for one of the killers. So, again, I think it's just been a first viewing, and... I'm generally really happy with how the film panned out. So I'm excited for a second viewing because I think I'll get a lot more out of it. I'll hopefully notice more things and appreciate the um, kind of reveal a bit more. I think because obviously first time round you don't know what to expect and you can be a bit like, oh, is that it? But I'm ready to embrace the whole toxic fandom commentary and just enjoy it for what they've given us. Yeah, exactly. It's really well written. It's performed with that kind of knowing eye of people who've been there before and they're carrying it over. It's good that the legacy characters don't overwhelm the plot. They're there to guide everybody else through it. Also, I have to mention the Billy Loomis nod at the end where Sam is, well, her life is in danger, but Billy Loomis gives her the tools she requires to repeatedly stab one of the killers, in a fairly frenzied attack and then slashed the guy's throat as well, for good measure. Oh, yeah, I loved it. And what she say, don't fuck with a serial killer's daughter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, words to live your life by there, I think. He definitely met his match there. I think these killers, they, they get too big for their boots and by the end they kind of lose momentum. So Yeah. They needed to go out with a bit of a bang and... And that sort of final, well, I mean, it's not quite the final death because there is a there, there is that thing where you're waiting for somebody to jump out, and they do. But in terms of building up to a really spectacular death, they give one of the killers, well, arguably they give both of the killers the most spectacular death of, of all because certainly the stabbing of Richie goes on forever. I mean, she's just she just stabs the absolute shit out of him. But you can't blame her. I mean, no, he's no. deceased for that long and he <laughs> attacked her sister yeah. more than once in horrendously brutal ways. And then he was playing Mr. Nice Guy. No, he deserved all he got. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you normally come out of a, a, a film like that and think they got what they deserved, but it was a little bit of a weak payoff. This isn't. I mean, she makes sure he's dead. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So if they make any more movies, I'm going to be quite happy with that. But I think they need to rest Sydney and Gail yeah. because I don't want either of them to die. Yeah, I um, want them to be able to live happy lives now and as best as they can after all these years of trauma. I mean, I'd like them to probably cameo in it, but I just want to see it kind of taken in a fresh direction if that's what they're planning on doing because we do have characters that are linked to original characters and i think it would just be nice to take it in a, in a fresh direction and just focus on the new generation and you know if as long as they've got strong writing great acting they can't really go wrong they could really develop this into 
something quite awesome. The torch has been passed anyway, so Sydney has given Sam the tools she needs to survive the rest of the new franchise, so I don't think there's any particular reason to focus on Sydney or Gale anymore. Partly because I have a, you know, I have an affection for Sydney. It's like, you can't kill her off. You really can't kill her off. But for the franchise to go forward, Sydney isn't all that necessary anymore. She's got a settled life now. She's a complete badass. Just leave her to enjoy the rest of her life because there's no reason to drag her back into anything. And I think that if they're going to focus on the new characters, do that if there's going to be a Scream 6. Which I guess there's going to be. I mean, considering it's made a ton of money already, I'd be extremely surprised if they didn't do a sequel. Yeah. Now, Scream 4 didn't perform as well, so that's why we didn't get any more movies. But with this one doing as well as it has been, I think there's a, a bloodlust for a bit more. So I'm intrigued to see where it can go. And yeah, I'll be looking forward to it if they make another Scream movie and I'll be there first thing on the day of release ready for it. Going back to how well this film is doing, uh, Rotten Tomatoes, it has an 83% audience score, 75% tomato meter, and it's currently holding 7.3 out of 10 on IMDb. That's fair. That's fair. I think that Scream's a weird one because I think you can come out of it and have a very visceral reaction one way or the other. And I think it's a movie that deserves for you to stand back, give it a couple of days, and think about what you really felt about the movie. I had an idea what I felt about it when I came out of the cinema, but it was only when I sat back and thought about what went on and how it linked to everything else that I thought, you know what, this is a good movie. I thought it was a good movie coming out of the cinema. I'm definitely sure it's a good movie now. Yeah, definitely. So, Darren, what are your personal rankings of the franchise? We've got to do this. We we have to... Now we've got a new movie. Where yeah. does it fit in? Right. In the overall franchise. Okay, screen fans out there, please don't send me hate mail for this ranking. As I said before, there are no bad screen movies. Even the one that's at the bottom of the ranking is a pretty good movie. But right now, my personal ranking of the screen movies goes one, two, five, four, three. Okay. So mine might be a little bit controversial, but not. It's not too bad, no. but I'm going to say it. Scream 2 is my favourite of the entire franchise. That's fine, because, I mean, the, the gap between Scream 1 and 2 is very close. As I, I mean, said to somebody the other day, in terms of ranking, 1 and 2 are very close. 5 is close behind that. 4 is close behind that. 3, it's a little bit further away, but it's not terrible. Absolutely. So mine goes 2-1. This was a very hard decision. But I'm going with five, then four, because I rewatched Scream Four before seeing five, and I had a great time. I really enjoyed it. There's some excellent set pieces in that, but I just I don't know. I think five has the edge over it because it takes more risks. Yeah. And then obviously number three is at the bottom, but again, it's still an enjoyable movie. But I think it could have been better. There's all that what if what could have been with Scream 3 yeah because it, yeah, it. it has the best ideas arguably in the whole franchise but they're just not developed enough it's got some great theories and it's got some great potential but as you said because it was rushed and because there were problems with scheduling you got something that didn't hit the heights that you could have done I think if they'd have given it another year if they'd have decided to release it the year after then maybe we'll be sitting here talking about how Scream 3 is the best one of the lot, but it isn't. But I do think, in a very disturbing way, the movie was trying to tell us something, yes. um, especially with the whole Hollywood casting couch plot within it. Yeah. Uh, and that, considering who produced it, I'm not going to mention <laughs> his name, Yes. but it's pretty dark. Yeah, but... and I think that's one of the other things. I think it does take some risks and i think that if they'd have developed that kind of plot about the sort of darkness of the studio system and how they cast people and where the sort of power brokers are in it i think you know we could have been saying scream 3 is by far the best one because it takes the most risks and i think that just the fact that 
because it's all rushed and it's a little bit watered down and they throw the celebrity cameos in and things like that, I think it just ends up diluting what message it could have had. Personally, I'm a massive fan of Jay and Silent Bob. I love their movies. But when they appeared in Scream 3, I just thought, really? I mean, really? Is that where we are with this one? And it's a shame because, I mean, I love the characters, but I thought they don't really belong in a Scream movie. I know that it's trying to be so self-referential that it's almost coming right back on itself. But at that point, I don't know. I've seen it several times since. I think I've got more of an appreciation for Scream now than when I first saw it because I was not impressed at all when I saw it at the cinema. But it's a time to reevaluate it. But reevaluating it for me still puts it at the bottom of the rankings. But a bad Scream movie is a whole lot better than a lot of good slasher movies. Definitely. Now, I'm in agreement with you there. And maybe one day we will cover some more of the movies in the franchise on this podcast. So let us know if you'd like more of that, maybe around kind of Halloween time or something, because I think we can talk to death about this franchise. Yes. So thank you so much for listening. What were your thoughts on Scream 2022 or Scream 5? We'd love to know. Obviously, healthy debate, but no toxic fandom. Otherwise, Ghostface will get you. I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for this slightly unscheduled episode 51 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, you can check out more of our episodes. Go on our social media. We are on at HD Movie Podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. So what are we doing at the moment? Well, we are going to be appearing on a completely different podcast Watch out for us appearing on the top 10 of everything, where we're going to be discussing top 10 scary moments. Yeah, I'm very much excited to let you know what we've come up with. As seasoned horror fans, you may be surprised by some of our choices. Absolutely, yeah. You're going to be surprised by quite a few of them, I think, because we're not touching on a lot of the classic ones. There's some deeply scary stuff in there, but it's not what you expect. And then uh, following on from that, we will, as promised, be going back to the best worst movie ever made, Troll 2, along with Troll and Best Worst Movie, the documentary. So look out for that soon. Yeah, unless we decide to cover yet another movie in the meantime and then have episode 52 covering something completely different. However, we are intending to do Troll, Troll 2, Best Worst Movie for the next episode. So look out for that. Until then, stay safe, everybody. We'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bay. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean.